How do you handle endings? When the end draws near for a difficult year or a stressful job or an overwhelming assignment with school, we tend to have a couple of responses. One is, I've made a mess of it, so I'm going to drown my sorrows in watching TV, eating favorite foods, enjoying a familiar book, or any number of strategies to distract ourselves and keep despair, frustration, all of those sorts of emotions at arm's length. At the same time, we also can tend to withdraw from people around us in those situations, particularly if we feel like they're part of the reason that the situation has been hard. Now, perhaps your year went very well and you can't relate to what I'm talking about right now, but I'm sure all of us have had moments when we've gone through something very difficult and we just sort of want to get away from it. We want to avoid it. For Peter's audience in the first century, overwhelmed potentially by persecution and looking fervently to the much better realities of Jesus coming back, when we see Peter say the end of all things is at hand, we would expect potentially for him to say something other than what he does because of these draws that we have to be discouraged, to despair, or to hide away. But Peter calls them and to us to some potentially surprising responses. At the end of things, pray and love fervently. First of all, don't despair or run to distractions, but pray to God. He says, the end of all things is near, therefore, be of sound judgment. Another way of putting this would be to be in your right mind. Uh, Titus 2.6 uses this word, and it's translated there, sensible. Someone who is thinking through things, uh, uh, focused on making right decisions. Uh, It's used as a description of the man after Jesus cast the demons out of him. He's sitting there in his right mind. This man had been raving, running naked among the tombs, just acting strange and wild and crazy. After Jesus cast the demons out of him, they go into the herd of pigs which go off the cliff. The man is sitting there clothed and in his right mind. If you were to make a will or sign some kind of legal document, one of the basis, one of the uh, grounds on which it could be contested is if you're not in your right mind, if there's some way to show that you've been unduly influenced or you weren't thinking clearly about what was going on. Peter says here, if you are facing, as they were, the end of all things and time of intense persecution, difficulties overwhelming you, Be of sound judgment. Those are moments in which we tend not to be of sound judgment and we tend not to make right decisions because we are discouraged and frustrated and overwhelmed. Peter says, no, be of sound judgment. And then he says, and sober. The translation here supplies the word spirit. I think that's correct in terms of the attitude or the approach with which we're looking at life. Another way of saying this would be clear-headed. This is the idea of being self-controlled. It's set in contrast, for example, to, uh, we saw this earlier actually in chapter 1, verse 13, prepare your minds for action, keep sober, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
For Peter's audience, facing persecution and difficulty, it would be possible for them to have the response of the Thessalonians, which is, Jesus is coming back, forget everything else, let's just sit here and wait. Or it would be possible for them to say, it doesn't look like it's going to happen. And that's actually the direction that Peter goes in 2 Peter. He says, there are people who will say, where's the promise of his coming? And it is easy for us as believers to adopt that same attitude. He says he's going to come back. He's made all these promises. When are they going to be fulfilled? Things don't seem to be getting better. Things don't seem to be improving. And so Peter says, don't lose hope. Don't despair. Fix your hope completely on the hope to be brought to you. Chapter 1, here he says, be sober. He's going to have the same uh, admonition in chapter 5 and verse 8. Be sober, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In order to face the temptation to despair and all the other temptations that Satan might bring against us, we have to be sober, we have to be prepared, we have to be ready. This is set in contrast to being asleep or drunk in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, it, uh, Paul talks to his audience and says, we are those who are of, of the day. We are not those who are drunk or asleep. We are not those who are distracted and unfocused and just going every direction. It's something that uh, Paul admonishes Timothy to be as a good steward of his ministry as well in 2 Timothy 4.5. Maybe you and I wouldn't use sleep or alcohol or whatever else to hide from our problems. But we often find ways to avoid them. Peter says... Instead of avoiding your problems, instead of hiding from your problems, instead of distracting yourself from your problems, instead of being overwhelmed by your problems, be sensible about them and be sober in response to them. Face them with God's help. I was having a conversation with 8th grade Bible class last year or maybe the year before and uh, one of them was saying something like, well, when I have a bad day at school, sometimes my mom will be like, hey, just come enjoy some ice cream with me. Is it sin to eat ice cream when you've had a bad day at school? It's not sin, but here's the problem. We have all sorts of coping mechanisms that we turn to when we're overwhelmed with life that are not God first and foremost, and sometimes we never get to turning to God in the midst of those things. Peter is saying, your response in life, good times, bad times, whatever else, be sober, be sensible. Why? For the purpose of prayer. Turn to God first. Turn to God always. We saw earlier in this book that a right relationship with your husband or wife makes it possible for you to approach God in this way. It said at the end of verse 7, show your wife honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Same word for prayer there that he uses in chapter 4 and verse 7. Uh, James 5.17 shows us that a right relationship with God makes you able to pray in this way. Uh, 
Elijah was a man like us, but he prayed fervently that it would not rain and did not rain for three years. Perhaps the greatest example of this sort of prayer is Jesus. We see, for example, in Matthew 26, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Peter was there, remember, Peter who's writing this epistle. Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And said to Peter, So you men cannot keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away until I, unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. There can be moments of great spiritual difficulty. And if we are not disciplined and sober and sensible for the purpose of prayer, we're going to be exactly like Peter and the disciples, asleep. In those moments when we should be leaning on God, when we need to be turning to God, when we need His help and His strength, if we are lazy and undisciplined and unfocused and allow the circumstances of life to overwhelm us and we haven't built into our lives good patterns of turning to God when you're eating your breakfast in the morning on a work day, when something comes up and you're not sure what to do, some appliance breaks at your house, when you are trying to talk to someone about God and they just sort of shut you out and you take that to God, when God blesses you in some way, take that to God. If we're not in the habit of prayer through the everyday circumstances of life, if we're not in the habit of being sober and sensible about prayer day in and day out, then when those moments of difficulty come, we're not going to be prepared for them. We're going to be either actually or figuratively speaking, asleep. Peter and the disciples were actually asleep. There's nothing wrong with being tired, and certainly we need sleep. But there are moments when it is more important for you and I to talk to God than it is for us to sleep. And in a society that's had a very big push in the last few years on do things that are good for yourself and take care of yourself and all those sorts of things, that is perhaps in some ways a corrective to the work 70, 80 hours a week and never have time for anything else attitude of 50 years ago. But what tends to happen in so many things in life is the pendulum swings too far the other way. Here it was, always be working. Here it is, never do anything hard. The solution is not to go back to this or to give ourselves fully to where we are now as a society, 
The solution is to go to what God has said and say that there are moments every day, all throughout the day, in which the highest priority for us needs to be prayer. So, Wednesday night when we go back to our book on prayer, read back over that first chapter. Think about what it's saying. Listen to maybe some of the messages on prayer that Bob sent out uh, to help you reflect on why prayer is important, why we need to turn to God, why it is essential that we pray to God. But Peter is saying here, don't despair when you're overwhelmed with difficulty. Don't run to distractions when life isn't going exactly the way that you want it to be. Pray. Furthermore, don't hide away from people, but love them fervently. We see this in verses 8 through 11. Starts with having a right relationship with God. If we're not spending time with God in prayer, alone, with the people around us, we're not going to have a right relationship with the people around us. And say, well, but I can get along with the people around us regardless of how my relationship with God is. Maybe briefly. But you cannot give and give and give to people around you and love them fervently if you don't love God first and if you don't have His strength and His help and the relationship that is vital and essential to your Christian life. Like Jesus says in John 15, the vine with the branches, if you cut a limb off a tree, it dies. If you and I think that we are going to have the ability to produce the fruit of godliness and the characteristics of the Holy Spirit in our relationships with people around us without having a connection to God through Jesus, the Bible says it doesn't work that way. And so it starts with a right relationship with God. But then we turn to our relationship with those around us and we see that we're not supposed to hide away from people but to love them fervently. We could say the end of all things is near. What are we going to do? Be overwhelmed and despair. We could say the end of all things is near. Why does it matter how I relate to people around me? If there was five minutes left on the clock of your life, why would it matter for you to spend time with someone and say some whatever it is thing to them or do something with that person? Why would it matter? Shouldn't you go enjoy your last five minutes? What if it's their last five minutes? What if you have one day left at your job? What if you have two days left of the school year? Does it matter how you and I finish? Maybe you've done great the whole year. Maybe you've done great the entire time throughout that job. Maybe... We're not talking about jobs and school assignments. Maybe we're talking about the course of your life. You say, I have walked with God for 20, 30, 50 years. What does the last few months matter? And say, we shouldn't think that way. We shouldn't. But Satan tempts us to say, well, it, you, know, you look at all this. What does this little bit matter? 
Peter says love people fervently. Why? Well, first of all, he says love fervently because love covers many sins. Verse 8, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. People have used this verse in all sorts of interesting ways. So, what does it mean for love to cover sins? I looked at some of the other ways that that word is used in the New Testament. Matthew 10, 26 uh, makes it clear that in time all things are going to be revealed. Everything that's covered is going to be made known. And so what he's not saying is you can sort of um, take everything like this is the way that kids clean their rooms, right? Or want to unless you're supervising them. They take all their stuff and they shove it in the corner or under the bed or behind a door. Okay? It's not actually cleaning, but it's what kids and some adults tend to do, right? What ends up happening eventually? Someone finds the mess. In a much greater, far more significant, far more sobering way, nothing that we do can ultimately and forever be hidden. God sees it, and in time, it ends up getting revealed. This is true of people who try to cover up uh, shoddy work on a house. I was looking at my house one time, and I realized there must have been a piece of furniture in this one corner of my basement, because at some point there was a flood, so they replaced the, the uh, paneling up about halfway. And then they put a trim piece to kind of cover up the seam between the beadboard and the paneling that was left that they had painted. But there's a corner, several corners actually, where they said, you know what? It doesn't really matter that the, the, the trim piece is an inch too short. We're just going to stick it up there anyway. And so there's corners where there's that much of a gap in the corner. As long as the piece of furniture is in front of it, you don't see it. But as soon as that gets pulled away, it gets uncovered. So this verse in Matthew says, all things will eventually be revealed that have been hidden. Romans 4 says, blessed are those whose sins have been covered, quoting from the Old Testament. And so eventually all things will be uncovered or revealed. Blessed are those whose sins are covered. Who are they covered by? Paul makes it very clear in the context of Romans 3 and 4. Our sins can't be covered by our own efforts, but it's through grace and faith, and the work of Jesus Christ. That's what covers sins. Peter says an interesting thing earlier in our book, in 1 Peter 2, verse 16. says, Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. So all sin will eventually be revealed, so we can't just expect it to be covered and hidden away and never show up again. It can be actually dealt with, covered, by the forgiveness that God supplies. We can't use the fact that God has forgiven us, Peter says, as an excuse to do more evil and say, well, God's taking care of it. I don't have to worry about it. Peter then says, love fervently because love covers a multitude of sins. Probably quoting Proverbs 10, 12, where it says love covers wrongs. What is he saying here? Sin needs to be dealt with. Only God can ultimately do that but on the basis of what God has done and the forgiveness that God supplies, you and I are able to forgive the people around us. 
we were able to also to cover wrongs. We should always be ready to forgive. We should never resort to gossiping about sin instead of dealing with them. We, we need to actually deal with sin. In any situation, we basically have two options. What it talks about here is that love covers it, which is I am prepared to forgive and I, I forgive and maybe I'll even have a conversation with the person about it because I assess that, you know what? Somebody did something that hurt me, that was difficult, that was unloving or unkind or whatever else. But in this moment, I don't have to confront that person about this thing. But maybe you just say, I can't stop thinking about this. It's just really eating at me. We tend to say, well, then my option is to be angry with the person and bitter about it or to go talk to someone else about it that's not going to fix the problem. We cannot be bitter. We cannot gossip. We either deal with the sin by forgiving it without a conversation with the person or, and this is, I think, probably something we need to be in the habit of far more often than we are, we go and have a conversation with someone and we say, here's this thing that's going on. Here's this sinful action, particularly when it's directed towards someone else. This is where I think, as we think through this concept of love covering wrongs and a multitude of sins, if we look at examples of people in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament, confronting people tended to be, not always, but often reserved for situations in which there was a wrong done against someone else or an offense to God's glory. Uh, When it was injustice and persecution directed towards us, Jesus said things like, if he asks for your your coat, give him your tunic also. If he says, go with me one mile, go two. There There should be this attitude of forbearance and forgiveness and willingness to sacrifice and have our rights be trampled on and all those sorts of things personally. Some people then will say, well, that means that we just got to let everything go. There are very clear instances, particularly things that are done against people who are incapable of standing up for themselves, that we have, I think, a greater obligation to step in and confront. Now, obviously, no one is morally innocent in God's sight. We're all sinners. But there's a difference between a child or someone who's in a vulnerable position being taken advantage of versus us being willing to forgive people who have done wrong to us. Peter is saying, in your relationship, particularly with one another, because he uses that phrase, one another, love covers a multitude of sins. We should be having an attitude of forgiveness toward one another in this assembly. Someone says something that you say, I really wish they hadn't said that. That, that, that hurts me. Are you willing to overlook that? Are you willing to forgive it? Are you willing to show love that covers it? On the basis of the fact that God has forgiven you, you and I can forgive other people much smaller things than God has forgiven us for. But if you say, I I don't feel like love can cover this, I don't feel like, I, I feel like I need to have a conversation, then have that conversation with the person. 
but on the basis of love, seeking to deal with the problem so that it doesn't turn into bitterness and resentment or gossip which destroys relationships. Love is the thing that motivates us to deal with sin properly. That's what Peter is saying here. Love fervently because love covers many sins. I said don't hide away from people, but love them fervently. If, if, if it felt like it was the last day that we had as a church on earth, it, yeah, there was like a Cold War kind of situation where it looked like there was going to be sort of this nuclear apocalypse and, or this just disease wiping out large swaths of society. And I'm not minimizing all the things that happened with COVID, but something much, much worse. There have been things much, much worse in history. If it was, looked like it was going to be the last day or the last week as a congregation, there would be a temptation to say, I don't have to deal with the fact that I'm mad at you about this thing. I don't have to deal with the fact that that person said that thing about me. I don't have to deal with those things because this is the bigger deal. It's the end of the world. Literally and really and truly, not when we use that phrase flippantly. Peter says, even if it seems like it's the end of the world, deal with sin properly between you and other people. This is important because it impacts our ability to worship. Think about what Jesus said in the context of temple worship in the Gospels. If you have something against your brother or he has something against you, go deal with that and then give your offering to God. It's easy for us to say God's really concerned about the offering and the externals and the appearances of things. But the Old Testament makes it clear God looks on the heart, not on the externals, which is why he picked David and not David's older brother and why he ended up rejecting Saul. God is concerned about the reasons that we do things, that we're obeying him, not just that we're performing rituals, which is why he condemned Saul for offering the wrong sacrifice. He condemned the people of Israel for coming to the temple over and over again when their hearts were full of idolatry. They'd come to the temple, they'd offer their offering, and then they'd go commit immorality and idolatry and say, we're good because we did the offering. And God says, I really don't care that you've done the ritual if your heart isn't right with me. Deal with sin because you can't worship God properly until you have done so. Love fervently because love is the motivation to deal with and to cover sin in a proper way. Love fervently serving God as you serve others. We see this in verses 9 through 11. First of all, showing hospitality. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. And I think in connection with that verse 10, as good stewards of God's manifold grace. Why should we show hospitality without complaint? Well, Philippians 2 says we're supposed to do everything without complaining. We're like, complaining's not that big of a deal. Everybody complains. We complain about the roads. We complain about the weather. We complain about the traffic. We complain about all sorts of things. And then we read a passage like 1 Corinthians 10 where it says, And the Israelites grumbled in the wilderness, and God struck many of them dead. And we say, complaining is actually a bigger deal than we thought. Why would we complain when it comes to hospitality? Because we want to do hospitality in a way that's, that, that has very clearly defined boundaries. Come to my house. But when I'm ready for you to leave because I'm tired of you being there, you need to go. 
Come have dinner, but don't eat too much, because that's expensive. Come visit with me, but if I find you boring or uninteresting, I don't want you to stay very long. That's the way that we kind of want to do hospitality. And Peter says, don't do hospitality that way. Show hospitality without complaint. And obviously their culture is a little bit different. Our culture is hospitality because it builds friendships. And their culture was hospitality because sometimes that person wouldn't eat if you didn't have them over for a meal. Or that person didn't have anywhere to stay if you didn't open up your home to them. Hebrews says an interesting thing. It says to be ready to be hospitable because in this way people have entertained even angels without knowing it. We see that, for example, in Genesis. So showing hospitality without complaint as a steward of God's grace is one way for us to demonstrate fervent love for one another in the body of Christ. If your reason for not having people over to your house is because uh, it doesn't look exactly the way you think it should look, consider whether that might be a little voice of pride saying, people need to think well of me or I won't obey God. If your reason is, well, I can't cook this big, fancy, 18-course gourmet meal, doesn't say anything about that here. It just says, show hospitality. You say, I literally don't have the money to feed people. Then have people over and do something else with them. Spend time with them in some other way. One of the challenges that I think we've struggled with at our church is the fact that we live at significant distances from one another. So how do we connect well with each other during the course of the week? Something that I want our family to do better about, and I would just challenge you to consider as well, is we can connect with one another in our church to the extent that we show hospitality to one another and spend time with each other in context outside of the service times, which I'm not saying the service times are bad. We need these times to gather, but the conversations that we have right before and right after the service are of a different nature than the conversations you have when somebody's over at your house for an hour or two or three. Showing hospitality without complaint. Speaking with God's authority. Verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Literally the word is oracles. We see this referring to Moses in Stephen's sermon in Acts 7.38. He says that God gave his oracles through Moses and then the people rejected him and all those sorts of things. But it's this idea that basically here's God's word handed down from on high and then we are proclaiming it to the people around us. Sometimes we forget that this was one of the significant responsibilities of the prophets in the Old and New Testament. We tend to focus on prophets told the future. But in reality, probably much more of their time was spent saying, here's what God's already said and what you need to do and how you should live and go back to what God has called you to. So, you know, we looked at Isaiah, and yes, we have Isaiah 7.14 where it says that Jesus is going to come, the Messiah is going to come and be born, and all those sorts of things. And Matthew refers back to that. But we have all these other things where Isaiah is basically just saying, 
you people of Israel have wandered from your God. Here's all the things that God has done for you. Here's all the things he's called you to do. Go back to him and live the way he's called you to live. Much of Isaiah's ministry, Jeremiah, all the other prophets, was calling the people back to things that God had already said. How are we going to be able to speak as those who speak God's utterances? We have to be speaking the things that God has said. Romans 3.2 says that the, the, Jews, the Jewish people receive the oracles of God. I think essentially what he's getting at here is that you and I need to speak God's word with God's authority. Matthew 7.29, the people are amazed because Jesus taught them as one having, a, and having authority and not like the scribes. Here's what it's tempting to do when it comes to the Bible. Well, it could be this, because this commentary says this, and it could be that, because this commentary says that, and it could be this other thing, because this blog post online said that, and it could be this, because my friend said this. Does it matter that we think about the options for understanding a particular passage of Scripture? Yes. But our focus should not be on, I am right, therefore you listen to me. Our focus should be on, God has said, and we are under God's authority, so because God has said, I say to you, so are you going to listen to God? Now, we want it often to be, I'm right, so listen to me because I'm right, because then we feel this sort of satisfaction that we're right. We see this attitude in arguments people get into online and arguments that people have in person. And I'm not saying being right doesn't matter, but I'm saying what matters far more is saying, here's what God said, so that's why it matters. Think about Peter's own experience. And this is one of the things that studying through this book, I think, has really sunk in for me in a way that it didn't before when I read First Peter in the past. First Peter didn't just spring into existence outside of the context of Peter's own experience. Peter walked with Jesus, had all the things happen that we see described in the Gospels, all the things happen in the book of Acts. Then he writes this letter, probably very close to the end of his life, at least what we see based on Second Peter 1, Peter's the guy that gets up and he's like, hey guys, listen to me, because I'm right. And a lot of times he wasn't right. He's like, let's build three tabernacles. Jesus says, not the time or the place. He says, let's do this. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He says, let's do that. There were so many times when he, in his own authority, was speaking and he was just plain wrong. He says, I will never deny you. Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the night's out. What happens to Peter after he has that moment of denying Jesus? He's ashamed, he's broken, he's discouraged, he's convinced that 
There is nothing more for him to do, such that at the end of John 21, when Jesus talks to him and says, do you love me? Peter won't look him in the eye and say, yes, I love you, using the word that Jesus used. He's like, you know, Jesus, I care about you. He's gone from, I will never deny you, to, I don't know that I can ever again speak that boldly. But what do we see at the beginning of Acts? The power of the Holy Spirit falls on him, and he gets up and preaches at the day of Pentecost, and with God's authority, he goes back to all of the history of the Old Testament, and he says, here's what God has done, and here's the things that the prophets said, and this has been fulfilled in your hearing. This man is the Messiah. God has sent him. Believe in him. Don't believe in me. Don't listen to me. Don't listen to my authority. This is God's word and God's authority and God's power. So when Peter says to you and I, whoever speaks, speak as the one who's speaking the utterances of God. Make sure you're speaking God's utterances. And if you are speaking God's utterances, then it's God's authority that stands behind what you're saying. It doesn't matter if anyone listens to you. It doesn't matter if anyone loves you for saying it. It doesn't matter all those things. It's God's Word, and God's Word will do its work. Serving with God's power. The one who serves as one who is serving by the strength with which, which God supplies. What sort of strength are we talking about? This word is used in Mark 12, verse 30. Love the Lord your God with all your strength. Ephesians 1.19 and 6.10, that God worked salvation by the strength of His might. So basically what Peter is saying here is that you and I are serving others with God's resurrection power standing behind and enabling our service. You say, I don't want to serve that person. That's okay. God's power can enable you to do it even when you don't want to. It's too hard for me. God's power can enable you to do it when it's too hard for you. This reminds me of something that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.16. He says, who is adequate for these things? Here's the mysteries that God has revealed. Here's the fact that we've been entrusted with the gospel that saves people's souls when activated by the power of the Holy Spirit as people hear what God has said. And, and God called us to do that. It's not your power. It's not my power. Paul said, we're not as those who peddle or sell or market or package the word of God so that people will believe it. Because if you're spiritually dead and, heart, and unable to hear and unwilling to see, like so many people who heard God's message throughout the Bible, if all those things are true of you, you and I don't need a persuasive message to see people's lives changed. We need to speak God's Word, like we just saw, and even though we feel inadequate to serve Him in that way and in so many other ways, it's God's power that stands behind that service. What does service look like? We'll talk more about it in a moment, but... You say, I don't... 
I don't think I can pick up the floor one more time at home. You say, I don't think that I can say one more encouraging thing to this person who every time I say encouraging things to them, it just doesn't seem to help. Say, I don't, I don't think I can give anymore because every time I give, it just it doesn't seem to make things any better. To the extent that we think that our power, our ability, our strength is the reason that service is supposed to work, we're going to be frustrated because it's not. It's God's power that has to stand behind the things that we do do it because God sees, do it for God, and keep doing it because God will help you. Don't grow weary in well-doing. All these things are for God's glory. We see this at the end of verse 11. So that in all things God may be glorified. Why do you show hospitality? Why do you speak God's word? Why do you serve in God's power? For God's glory. When do we see God's glory? We see it in that day. Verse 12. Live this way among the Gentiles, so in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, your fervent love, your hospitality, and your speaking, and your serving, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. God will be glorified in that day, and in every circumstance until that day. 1 Corinthians 10.31 whether you're eating or drinking or anything else that you do, do all for God's glory. Why? Because God is worthy. To whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Who is worthy of praise? God is. Who rules over all things and has the right and authority to carry out his plan in the universe? God does. So, who should get the credit for all of the things that happen as we serve him? God should. Not you, not me. God. Let's bring all these things together. I was reflecting on this phrase in John 13, 1. Jesus is described this way. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In John 13, we see Jesus teaching the principle that we should similarly serve one another. Consider the context of that passage. Jesus is about to die. Like, they go out from there, they go to the garden, he gets arrested, he gets crucified, with a few other events in between. And the night in which he was betrayed... He bends down and washes his disciples' feet. And Peter, Peter, author of this book, guy who liked to speak up and often say the wrong thing, why stop with my feet, Lord? Do the rest of me, and then I'll always be clean. And Jesus said, the point is not that you need a bath, Peter. The point is, 
you guys walked in here arguing about who's better and who's greater and when is the kingdom going to happen and all these sorts of things because you talked about this all the time through these three years that I've been walking alongside you and you still haven't gotten it that one of you should be the one that comes and says, I stepped into this situation. How can I serve these people around me because the servant is not greater than the master and I'm your master and I'm now serving you. So pay attention to this lesson and serve one another. And serve one another if it's your last night on earth. And serve one another if you have 50 or 80 years stretching out in front of you. And serve one another when you feel like it and when you don't feel like it. And serve one another because it's motivated by fervent love. And I have loved you to the end, so serve one another. And there are some people who've said, well, this is just about washing feet. And that's a conversation that we can have, but... I think if we say it's just about washing feet, we're missing the bigger point that Jesus is saying here, which is we have opportunities to serve all around us. And that service often doesn't happen. And sometimes if it happens, it's not motivated by love, but it's supposed to be motivated by love. So Jesus is basically saying this, do all that you do on behalf of other people under God's direction and in willing service so that God gets the praise. Even if it's the end of your life, like Jesus, like Peter, like Stephen, like all these others, Stephen speaks as the oracles of God. Jesus washes feet the night that he's betrayed. Peter himself comes to a point where he's willing to act in this way as well. Even if it's at the end of that person's life, you say, what does it matter that I do this one more time? It may matter more than you know. That friend that's on their deathbed, that person that you're like, I'm never going to see them again because I'm about to wrap up this job. You may have one more opportunity to impact someone's life and point them to God's love demonstrated through your service. So it matters. You should look back and say, maybe I did this well this past year. Maybe you didn't. We're starting a new year today. Don't be overwhelmed with the circumstances of life and be in habits of turning frustration and selfish directions such that you don't turn to God in prayer. Turn to God in prayer constantly, regularly, so that you and I can have the strength that God supplies. And receiving the strength that God supplies, love one another fervently through hospitality, through moments of admonition, through acts of service to one another, so that God gets the glory. You and I should start this year off well, obeying Peter's admonition. At the end of things, pray and love fervently. Let's pray. Father, we can't do these things on our own. And hopefully we've all gotten to a point where we realize that. We can't do these things on our own if we don't first know you. So if there's anyone here who hasn't turned to Jesus to be saved from sin, we pray that you would do that work in their hearts, that they would see that they need to turn to you. 
if we have turned to you and we've lost sight, as Peter is going to talk about in his next book, of the important realities of our salvation. that it really does come down to certain basic things like prayer and knowledge of your word and then turning and serving the people around us. If we've lost sight of those things and we've, we've kind of thought, well, church is about doing things where people can see me. The Christian life is about not doing bad stuff because I don't want to be, get caught and people think badly of me. Help us to catch sight again of the reality that you hold out for us, that you are calling us to love you with all of our strength, to love one another as ourselves, serving as Jesus served, praying as Jesus prayed, so that you get glory. Help us to start this year out well, Lord, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.